Ladies and gentlemen, we're back. Welcome back to the Wandering Bear Sports Podcast Series, the number one sports podcast series on planet Earth. It's good to see you all. I hope you've had a lovely week. You're all looking well. Um, I hope you all enjoyed the Dan McKellar podcast as much as I did and learned a thing or two about what it takes to coach at the elite level. He was awesome, and I really appreciate his time. And for everyone that checked it out, super grateful. Got a lot of nice messages from it. So let's get into today's episode. Before we do, can I please ask that you make sure you follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Wandering Bear Sports. I think we've also got a TikTok, Twitter, LinkedIn. You know, might even get a Pinterest. I'm told that's a good thing to do. And yeah, we're building nicely, guys, but the more people that follow us on social media, the more people will see these podcasts. So get around us. All your support's been truly appreciated, and we're going to keep going. All right, this episode is brought to you each and every week by Caffeine Gum Australia. So Caffeine Gum Australia is a company that both Kate and I own, and if you've been a regular listener of this podcast, you'd know that the first time I had it was at Melbourne when I was playing a game versus the Rays or whatever they used to be called in the now defunct NRC. Actually, funny story about that. I wore a Country Eagles shirt to training. Might have been late last year or whenever, just before we got cancelled. And one of the kids goes, New South Wales Country, what's that? And I go, oh, I was a team in the NRC. And they go, what's that? So it just shows you how quickly things move. But, um, yeah, so everyone's heard that story. It's got 100 milligrams of caffeine tastes really good it's got three flavors arctic mint cinnamon spearmint it's water approved it rapidly absorbs to your brain so you've got caffeine gum soaring through you at a rate of knots and it's used by a lot of professional sporting teams because one it's water approved i think i just said that and two you don't have to go to the toilet five minutes after having one so check it out at www.caffeinegumaustralia.com uh, anything you buy through there goes into supporting this podcast. So thank you very much, guys. All right, today's very special guest is former Scotland fly half, Dan Parks. So I've met Dan a couple of times. We've had great conversations each time. So I was super grateful when he agreed to come on the podcast. During his professional career, he won 67 caps for Scotland, as well as representing the Glasgow Warriors, Cardiff Blues, and Connaught. Dan is currently the record appearance holder for Glasgow, as well as being the record points scorer. Uh, he also had the record points for the Pro 12 competition, now called the United Rugby Championships, uh, until he was just beaten recently, or might have been a year or so ago, by Dan Bigger, who beat the record by two points and then went and played club footy in England. Uh, so second all-time leading point scorer in that competition is still a remarkable achievement. He's played in two Rugby World Cups, he was the Scotland's Players Player of the 2007 tournament as well. Uh, once he's finished playing rugby, he's done a lot of work as a commentator and a lot of media work. And recently, he's just taken up the role as the Sydney U University Director of Colts in Sydney's Premier Grade Colts competition. Uh, I had a lot of fun talking to Dan. He's a great guy with a great story. And it, this, this podcast will really give some people an insight into what it's like going from amateur rugby to professional rugby then retiring from professional rugby and some of the ups and downs along the way. Uh, it was an honour and a privilege to have him on the podcast. And without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with former Scotland fly half and Sydney University Colts coach, Dan Parks. Mate, thanks for doing this. I really, really appreciate it. So be before we start, I 
you know, we've only met a couple of times, but we've had some pretty good chats both those times. So I thought it'd be great to get you on and actually talk a little bit about your rugby career and the journey you had. Cause, um, just as an example, we, we were at the cricket on Thursday and I posted a stupid video of me chewing, chewing gum on my Instagram page. You walked through the background for like one second. And from that video, I would have had five messages from people in Scotland going, is that Dan Parks? So you've got, so you've got almost these, these, I don't want to say two lives, but you know, you, you've, you're from the Shire originally. Is, is that right? No, no, not at all. I, um, I'm not from the Shire. I'm actually from, um, a place called Dundas for those Sydney siders will know, uh, or should know that in, um, basically between Parramatta and Ride. That's where I grew up. And, um, yeah, my brother, sister, and my mother all still live in that area. Okay, so so you're from Dundas originally, and then you've you've ended up somehow in Scotland, playing a long international career. I've, I was, you know, looking up some stuff on online. You got all these records. You know, you've been in two World Cups. You're the Scotland player, players player of one of the World Cups, and and just I thought it'd be great to get you on and talk about your journey from being a shoot shield player to working your way over to Europe, playing. How many tests did you play? Like eighty, something like that, seventy or eighty. Chubby, I thought you just said you did research, mate. Clearly, that's not the okay, case. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> term, um, no, I got. I was lucky to get sixty-seven caps, mate. In the end, I was, so, I was close. Yeah, you're close. Yeah, you will take. But yeah, man, um, sixty-seven, mate. I never thought I would, you know, uh, I guess get one. But um, yeah, to get given the opportunity was was pretty unreal. So how? Let's start from Sydney. So you've come out of school. Did you play Australian schoolboys or anything like that, or were you? like one of those local junior sort of talents that people see, like a prodigy kind of thing? How did? Let's start from the beginning and work our way till you get over to Scotland. Yeah, so I played um, – I was a – you know, you hear about fanatical fans. I was the ultimate fanatical rugby league fan as a kid. Um, fanatical rugby league in the, in the winter and then cricket in the summer. That was me. And, um, Matt, I was a Ricky Stewart tragic. So he was playing at Canberra. Obviously, I was right behind the Raiders in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. Um, then I, the school I went to was just a public school, Marsden High at Westride. And when I first arrived, they'd had rugby in the school, but it, like, it wasn't like a big thing. There was no real great success. Um, and luckily enough, eh, the year I got there, I sort of obviously from year seven up, just thought, uh, started to grow a reasonable team of athletes and sportsmen in cricket and rugby and we ended up doing some really good things at um, at the public school level, which was uh, which was unreal. And um, and I was playing from the age of uh, under 15s and 16s. I played for Dundas Valley Vikings on the weekend, and that was my real first, um, I guess, well, opportunity or weekend rugby that I'd ever played in my life. I'd, I'd always only played rugby league, and then I, um, you know, because I was playing it at school. Uh, to give you some idea, I didn't even know one player at the 1991 Rugby World Cup. So that's how little I knew about rugby. Obviously, since then, I've got to know a lot about rugby, a lot about the history of rugby, a lot about the um, the conquering uh, Wallaby team that won the 91 World Cup. But, um, yeah, as I said, I was a, I was a tragic leaguey. And, um, and just because I was at a school that played rugby, I started, I guess, playing it and then getting more and more into it. So so jumping from school to, to Colts or grade, did you – what was your first club after you left school? Did, was it – did you play shoot shield or did you play locally to start with? No, so I left. I played for the um, for the valley, um, as I said, up until sixteen. I left school 
Actually, I think it might have been, is it 15 or, I think it was 15, 16. And then I left school, um, I was young for my year, so I left in 1995, I was 17. And um, and we were part of, the, was it was called the Northern Suburbs Competition. And basically, um, you had Fort Street, Malvina, and they were the, and, and us. We were the main rugby schools and West Harbour was, was our local, was our like shoot shield club. So all the players that were involved in those teams, St. Pat Strathfield, Back then, it was more or less wherever you played, your junior schooling was where you went and played your club rugby. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Where that affiliation was. Whereas I know it's changed a lot now, but certainly back then, that's how it was. So West Harbour was where I played my Colts. I played um, uh, 996. I played the under-19s comp back then. Um, I was involved in that team. And then the following year, I played first grade Colts as a 19-year-old. And then the following year, 98 was my first year in grade. Um, I went up, obviously, a couple of years, and I um, just wanted to give it a shot. And luckily enough, I started playing first grade um, after the, I think it was round three. I played my first game. So what what kind of era was that? Because the Shoot Shield has had a few iterations of, let's say, professionalism, for a lack of a better way of saying it. Yeah. Um, and I think in your era, it was pretty damn serious at that time. Rough, roughly yeah. when was that? And who was coaching you at the time? So we had some really, really good players in the competition. Um, basically back then you had three provinces and if you weren't, basically if you weren't playing super rugby, you were back playing with your club. It's not like it is now. You, know, you give him a couple of weeks off, he's got a rest of his shoulder. It wasn't like that. It was you, if you're available, you're playing for your club. Club was almost not, obviously not more important than the super, but very much up there. So, um, you know, the, the teams obviously back then, Eastwood were very strong. Um, you know, Ramwick. Uni at that stage weren't strong when I first started, but it was the early 2000s they really started to rise. Um, you know, and, you know, some of the players, so Phil Wall was coming through, Chris Malone, uh, Uni. Then you had, gosh, Ranwick, Duncan McRae. Um, you know, the list goes on. There was plenty of good players. Um, as I said, Eastwood, the Miller brothers, they were all there at that stage. Uh, Matty Moston was one of his last years there before he went over to Ireland. Um, as I said, the whole comp was listed with real quality. So I'm, I'm going to ask, because I know you do some commentary for Stan and have covered a lot of Shoot Shield games and are now uh, director of Colts for Sydney Uni. So I'll, we'll eventually get to your thoughts on where the state of the Shoot Shield is now in comparison to how it has been, because I'm really interested to, to get your take on it. But how did you, so at what point did you get a sense that you could actually make a living out of the game? Or was it at that point, was it just something for a little bit of extra money and some fun? And then, and then from there, how did you make the jump over to Europe? Yes, I think, um, for me, I always wanted to be professional. Like I just as a kid, like I wanted to be a professional cricketer or, you know, leaguey or a rugby guy. But, you know, I was pretty realistic. I, as much as I wanted it, um, I almost, I also thought it'd be very hard to get there. I mentioned earlier on three provinces made it hard. You were, it was hard to get into the league circles unless you were. A bit, of, as you said, a prodigy, like a ten-year-old, eleven-year-old prodigy coming through. You, you've given those that opportunity, but that wasn't me. Um, so I, I really struggled. But the one thing I did have was was desire, commitment to what I was trying to achieve. Um, there was a lot of blokes as well around that, you know, eighteen to twenty-one period. They might have played, um, you know, for example, New South Wales nineteens uh, or twenty-ones. And a lot of those guys, if if the interest isn't there, for example, hundred uh, percent with them, or a coach isn't giving them the love. They'll just give it up and they'll go and off to business interests or whatever. Whereas I was probably the opposite to that. I was like more a case of, well, no, screw you. I believe I'm, I'm better than that guy and you're picking him. So I'm going to prove you wrong. That was sort of my attitude. Yeah. And, 
And yeah, I obviously had some early success with um with West Harbour in ninety eight uh, ninety eight. Um, I think I think I figured quite high in the point scoring charts that year, and um and I think you know that's always been I guess something that I've been able to fall back on is is my I guess my kicking abilities, my ability to score points, and as we all know, Chubby, you got to score points to win games. So you know that's that right, became quite valuable. And and in uh, oncoming years, uh, Max Curry obviously saw that talent. Um, he was uh, he, he was at Southern Districts at the time, and uh, he he gave me an opportunity to come down and play with them in um, in the year 2000. And uh, yeah, I ended up staying there for for three seasons, and then I played my last year um, at Eastern Suburbs. Scott Bowen was involved in the coaching staff there at the time. Um, so uh, yeah, Mick Doyle, he was head coach, and they basically presented just what they were thinking, the way their philosophy around the game. And it, it sort of suited me. And I was, um, at that stage, I was really actively looking overseas. Um, I actually got an agent involved and, you know, got it to about, we're now in 2003 and it got to about May, June. Uh, we were undefeated. Uh, Eastern Suburbs were undefeated that year. There was, that was the first year, I think, of the, the shoot shield, first 11 rounds, Chewy's new cup, the second 11 rounds. And, um, yeah, we were undefeated. We got into the last round, funnily enough. It was for the to win the shoot shield. It was us and Manly. Manly had lost one game and we were undefeated. And um, yeah, and I got an offer to to go to Glasgow Warriors. My agent at the time he, he had spoken to. Um, I basically said to him, "Listen, I'm ready to go. See what's out there." And you know, it was about ten days. He came back and said, "Mate, I got this opportunity. Glasgow Warriors. You got Scottish ancestry, so you qualify for Scotland. What do you think?" And I don't even think I. Uh, I think I came home and had a chat with with my mum and, and my girlfriend at the time and. And away we went, mate. Finished the season off, and then left in September of '03. Did you end up winning that shoot shield? Mate, we did. Yeah, we beat Manly. Um, I don't think there's been a celebration quite like it at the East Clubhouse. <laughs> uh, but it was it was the old East Clubhouse too. You know, the old trophy cabinet. We're on top of the trophy cabinet. You know, two a.m., three a.m. in the morning. Yeah, you know, still singing songs. And uh, but yeah, mate, old school um, club rugby. What it's all about. It was um, yeah, it was good times, man. And uh, it was interesting because we we went eleven and zero in the uh, shoot. And then we come to the two is new when all the super players are back and everyone else. And I think we won three from 11. So, yeah, sort of put into context as in how strong the comp was when those super rugby players were back. You told me a great story about when you first, uh, your first sort of GM or testing session when you became a professional player. Uh, would you mind telling that story? And then maybe talk more broadly about learning to be a professional player because you You've told me that you weren't someone that was a natural sort of gym junkie and you, and you had to learn the professionalism side of the game. Can you can yeah. you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so I think the only rule, um, I obviously did a little bit of gym, but, you know, my first experience of going to the gym was with a good pal of mine, um, Grant Bowman, down at Southern Districts. Uh, Grant was a bit of a man about town. Everyone down at, I'm um, sure, down the Shire knows Jibo. And we would um, we'd go to fitness first there on the corner there at Sylvania. Uh, on a you know on a Thursday afternoon, rocking there about I don't know four thirty, and we'd hardly lift a weight because every second person would come and talk to Grant and say good day, and we'd end up just talking the whole time. So didn't really do too many weights in those um, those couple of years at South. Um, did a bit at East, but not a great deal. And yeah, so I arrived into uh, into Glasgow. They um, you know I think I think I arrived on like a Monday or a Tuesday morning, whatever it was. And I think on the Wednesday, first day. Um, I went in there. That was I arrived before round three of the comp that year, um, and so yeah, they played two rounds. And actually, the next game was a they used to call them the Celtic Cup, uh, you know, which was the equivalent of an FA Cup style thing in football. So anyway, we'll, and the game was on the Sunday, I think. Anyway, on the Wednesday, we go to the gym, and 
the, the I can't remember the guy's name, the fitness guy. He's like, right, we're going to do fitness testing as in um, strength. So anyway, I was like, oh, okay. Never done that before, but I'll give it a shot. So um, literally laid down. I was 23 years old, mind you. Uh, laid um, down on the bench. He goes, right, everyone, um, let's just warm up on 80. Let's just rep out 10, and uh, then we'll get going into, um, you know, three rep max. So I get in there. 80s on top of me, I looked at it and I was like, I'm not even going to lift this off the bar. And um, for all these blokes, you know, because that was early, that was about six years into professionalism by this point. So a lot of blokes have been, you know, around that. And I I, honestly, I couldn't lift it off the bar. And it's my first day on the job. And obviously there's a bit of a, um, you know, laughter, ruckus laughter going around and so on, a bit of a laughing stock in the gym. And uh, anyway, so I eventually, I think I lifted 75 kg for one. So that was my official number. And then, um, you know, over the years, let's, you know, let's fast forward to my final year at Connacht. I think I, um, I lifted, you know, my PB ever was like 117.5, you know, for, and again, I know that's not much, but in comparison to where I started, you know what I mean? It's to a where huge I, improvement. Well, yeah. that was my journey, you know what I mean? So, um, you know, I guess for me, getting to that level was something I was always proud of, but yeah, I wasn't really proud of where I started, to be fair. <laughs> um, <laughs> Just just on that, there's a, a number of questions there. So what was it like going from the eastern suburbs of Sydney to Glasgow in terms of, like, I could just imagine that would have been a huge shock to the system. Was was that maybe your first time living overseas or going overseas on your on your own? And so you've got that, you're in a brand new culture and you've just become a professional rugby player for the first time. Uh, obviously, you've just done the, the fitness test and I'm, you know, I've, I remember when I was at the Rebels trying to do chin ups and it was a similar kind of story, just completely embarrassing. Yeah. How did you, how did you react and evolve and, and learn from, from the culture change and then trying to become a professional at the same time? Um, I think so in regards to that in 2001, I finished, um, my second year with Southern districts, you know, on an individual level, I had quite an incredible year. I scored a hell of a lot of points. Um, South, we finished really high up in the, on the table. We lost out in the second week of the semis to Eastwood. Um, as I said, Eastwood back in the day, Tim Donnelly, Paul Deneen, uh, steering the ship back then. They were strong. Um, but you know, I was full of, full of life. I got an opportunity to go to Leeds. The Leeds, um, I was going to say the Leeds were on. It's not the Leeds, it was Leeds Tykes. And it was yeah. their first year up in the top grade. Phil Davies, uh, ex Welsh, Welsh rugby player, ex Welsh le- coaching legend. He had brought them up from fourth year all the way into to the premiership. And, uh, yeah, so I, I played there for three months, similar sort of thing, you know, did obviously did a little bit of weights here and there, but again, I wasn't, it wasn't about that. I was there to, to cover. I was actually covering Brum Van Strutten. He wasn't yeah. arriving into Leeds until December. So, uh, they had a lot of 5-8 issues. So they needed, um, someone to come basically join as almost cover. And I ended up playing, I think I was there for 12 games, started 10 of them. Um, and, uh, and I was involved with, um, the other two. So, um, so I had that. I guess, exposure to, to what yeah. it was all about. Um, and then, yeah, so then going into the Glasgow setup, I think before I left, it was very much, let's not forget, I signed in June and I was going in basically the middle of September. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I had that two and a half months or whatever it was to get myself ready to understand what it is I wanted to achieve. Um, and, you know, my focus was very much on, um, as I said, I believe I, I had something to offer. Um, I think my game was going to, I thought my game would be really well suited to the way the game would be played over in uh, the Northern Hemisphere. And um, and that's more or less what I did. I think the first day of actual field training, that's what I really tried to implement on the team was exactly what my strengths were, as in my, my boot and my general, you know, um, 
I guess my um, communication, steering a team around the park, and, and that was clearly something that um, Glasgow needed at the time. And um, yeah, I found myself involved in the very first game. And uh, as I said, it was against we played the Celtic Warriors at Bridge End. We ended up winning that game. I came off, I came off the bench, um, and to me, it was like, wow, this is so cool. Um, I remember even think, seeing things on back then on the internet about how they were marketing the game. You know, it was just stuff I hadn't really seen in Australia. And I just, it was like, wow, this could be me for the next, initially I was like, this is me for the next two years. How good is my life going? And luckily I spent 12 years over there. Tell me about getting picked for Scotland for the first time. Um, so that, what happened there was we, uh, so again, I mentioned I arrived in September. My pure focus was on playing with Glasgow, creating a good impression, uh, being a good teammate um, to all the boys involved. So I went through that process. At the time when I uh, pretty much got there, you can just imagine I've flown. Um, the Scottish national team has flown the opposite direction. They were arriving into Australia for the 03 World Cup, and I was jotting down in Glasgow to be a uh, pro rugby player. Um, at the time, Matt Williams was the coach. He, Sorry, he was going to be the incoming coach of Scotland. Um, he was at the World Cup in Australia, and I got a phone call from him, you know, toward, getting towards the back end of the tournament. And he basically sort of said, uh, mate, looking forward to seeing how you go. I didn't know Matt from Barra, so I'd never met him before in my life. Um, obviously knew who he was. He coached at Leinster and he'd signed with, um, sorry, with Scotland and basically rang me up out of the blue and sort of said, mate, this could be a real opportunity, um, for you if you're, um, if you want to go down that path of playing at that next level. And I was like, wow, of course I am. You know, I'm more than interested. Um, and I think that was the first sort of realization in myself. Wow, this could be something bigger than what I initially thought it was going to be. Um, and then what happened was we had a we had a camp, so the World Cup finished, and then I think we had a camp in I'm going to say it was around Christmas time, maybe just before Christmas, and it really set the tone because the World uh, sorry the Six Nations starts early February. That was um, back in the day of foot and mouth over in the UK as well. So there was a lot of talk about how it would be interrupted the Six Nations and everything else. I think foot and mouth was predominant o two o three, so this was now o four. Um, anyway, so I. Um, yeah, it was in the, it was like a 40, 35 man, 40 squad. And then came back into another camp. I'm going to say it was obviously the week before we played. I think it was, um, I think my first test might have been about the 14th of February. I think it was Valentine's Day. Uh, it was against Wales. And yeah, it was a Sunday. We're in Stirling. We used to train at, um, a place called Stirling in Scotland, the middle, literally halfway between, um, Glasgow and Edinburgh. And, uh, my name got announced as number 21, as in, um, you know, basically standoff reserve and, yeah, I almost fell off my chair and I could, I sure. literally couldn't. And, uh, yeah, so given an opportunity and it was, it was a really daunting experience, man. I, uh, I'm actually going back really reliving what it was like because it was, it was a real different culture at Scotland when I first arrived until when I, when I finished. Um, it was in, in what way? Oh, well, it wasn't, um, I think uh, maybe, yeah, I'm sure different teams are like this, but I found it to be reasonably cliquey. When I first got there, there was a big Glasgow and Edinburgh contingent. And, you know, in particular for me, I was an Aussie. I was very new to the country. I was coming in. You know, there might have been a bit of like, what's, why is this guy deserving his place? What's he done to earn a spot so quickly? Um, and at the time, there was only, I think there was only two or three other Glasgow players, which I even knew, which were part of that 2022 back. It was 22 back then. So I yeah. found myself in, we were staying in Newport. Um, at uh, the beautiful Celtic Manor Resort. and But I felt really isolated because, it, as I said, the, the cliqueiness, and I was like, wow, this is this is not how I imagined it would be. Um, and I think it was almost took me until I got that cap and, you know, just, I guess, the effort levels and um, and a few different things I did in the game 
um, to get a bit of, I guess, appreciation, a bit of respect from, from, from some of those other international, uh, internationalists, especially the, the ones that were seasoned that have been around the game for a bit longer. And, and fortunately enough, I eventually got my first start, um, in the last game of that Six Nations, which was against Ireland at the old Lansdowne, uh, Lansdowne Road. And, um, and I got named players player for our team on that game. So I think that sort of, once that, once I got through that first campaign, I got, um, three caps off the bench and I got, the last start, I sort of felt a sense of, okay, I now feel like I'm starting to be part of this. So I think initially, um, it, it certainly didn't feel like that. And I reckon, um, yeah, it was, it was a tough, like it was, it was, it was quite difficult. I know it seems strange because you're like, well, how would it, how could it be like that? But I'm sure if there's listeners out there and they've been in a similar situation, be it, you know, in a business sense or, you know, going first day at school or whatever it may be, it's, um, you know, you're not alone there because I certainly had that feeling at, at the highest level of rugby. It, it it definitely makes sense, and I think that's probably a generational thing as well. Because I think now people are very, uh, and this is just very general. People are very welcome and accepting now, but maybe back then it was you need to earn your place kind of thing. Does does yep. that make sense? Tell me yeah. about the step. Tell me about the step up from from Glasgow to Test rugby. What were the differences? Did anything surprise you? Um, was it seamless? Was it easy? Like, what what was your what are your memories of of that transition? So, um, I guess for me, so uh, speaking of pro rugby, in, in for example, when I got to Glasgow, what I found was um, when you play against Irish teams, quick game, but very open, generally open. Um, the Irish would generally defend on a slide, which meant that I'm sure you recognise you could play with the ball, you could move the ball, but they always seemed to be in control of you defensively, but you could move the ball around. It was quite ex- it was a fun game to be involved in. Again, Irish provinces. When you played against Welsh, it was a complete opposite. They had a real blitz defence going on. If you got to a, to an edge, you just had no chance of moving the ball more than two passes. And their forwards were like what appeared to be 35-year-old, extremely angry big men. And they were always, you know, they'd get away with everything back then, you know, just cheating, so holding people back. They were the experts at doing really – Really smart things off the ball, referee. They, you know, get away with a lot. And I, it the, opened, the dark arts. And I, but it opened my eyes to so much. Like I played with the great Peter Kay, right? But this was different. It was like he was one. You know, at, at over there, all of them are doing it. And you're like, this is incredible. And you don't really realise it at the time. And then you watch video after. And you're like, gee whiz. And this is really before you even watched a lot of video. So um, that was a step up for me. That level, not the. Not the pace of the games compared to Shoot Shield, but just all those little those little intricacies. And then once you go to um, the, the the next level, obviously from going from um, you know from I guess from professional rugby in the in the UK, um, it was back then. I'm trying to get the name of the competition we played in. We ended up becoming the Magnus League, but at the time I can't quite recall. Um, but going up to that next level again, I mentioned my first game was against Wales. Yeston Harris was involved, the league legend who ended up becoming a, a rugby legend with Wales. He was, it was, I think it might have been maybe his first cap as well. And I'll never forget Jason White, um, who was a wonderful back row, tackling back row, absolutely superb. He literally cut him in half right in front of me. It was the most incredible shot I've ever seen in my life. And Harris got up instantly, like and nothing had ever happened. Now, this guy, if that was me, I don't think I'd be alive today. Because he literally cut him in half and he, all his ribs would have been shattered. But he just bounced straight up. And I just thought to myself, wow, this, this is what the next level is. You know, I'm, I'm in, I'm in a bit of trouble here. And, um, yeah, the, and the pace, you know, it was at Millennium Stadium. The roof was closed. The bars was made. It was incredible. Imagine, imagine 22 blokes standing in the tightest circle you could ever imagine. 
uh, Chris Patterson was our captain of the day. He's standing directly opposite me, 100 cap uh, veteran for Scotland, screaming at the top of his lungs. I could not hear one word that was coming out of his mouth. I could just see, obviously, lips moving because the noise and the, you know, the, the volume of what the Welsh crowd were bringing was, mate, it was phenomenal. And obviously, over the years at different grounds, uh, you'd feel that. But I must say, for that first cap, that was really cool. As in that moment, it was unreal. What's it like being? Um, you're, you're an Australian and you're playing rugby for Scotland, which is your, is it your grandmother's country? That's right. It's my mother, yeah. sorry, it's my mother's father. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's, it's, uh, you know, a, a place of ancestry. What, what is it like as an Australian playing for the national team of another country, you know, basically and the rich culture that Scot- Scottish rugby has and how serious it is and, did you get a sense of, of the history and the expectation? Like, what, what's it like coming from an outside place in, into the centre of it? I, I probably asked that question terribly, but no, do, you, no, do you get the gist of what I'm trying to say? I do, and I think the best way to answer that is I was very fortunate not to have a great idea of the history of Scottish rugby. So I think if I would have been coming into my first caps, I would have been probably overconsumed. I would have, would have really put the heat on me and been like, wow, can I actually handle this? Do you know what I mean? I think for me yeah. coming we're all the case of, oh, okay, well, I've gone from club to pro and now I'm, you know, I just felt like that. Um, and when I obviously was given the opportunity, unfortunately, I, I couldn't reach those heights in Australia. Um, but when I was given that opportunity to represent Scotland, you know, it was one of those things, grabbed it with both hands, like, oh, this is wonderful. Can you imagine, you know, me on playing at this level? Um, and yeah, it was, uh, you know, it sort of became, I guess, over the years, the next couple of years, my first World Cup was 2007 France. I reckon that's when it started to really become, you know, possibly, I guess, a bit bigger than what I probably imagined. You know, I know in the early days, um, we didn't have much success. So in particular, 05 and 06, sorry, more 04, 05, Scotland, we didn't do too well at the international stage. And and we would absolutely cop it in the press. Cop it like you would not believe. And it was it was quite um, confronting because I didn't. I got to a point where I didn't read press. I used to love the press in Australia because back then press was positive. It was not like it is today. If you were good, let's celebrate how good you were. If you were bad, let's not even mention him because what's the point of talking about something that's something that's negative? Now, man, that's just completely flipped. So I guess UK was ahead of its time. Because that's what they were doing to, to us as players. And, mate, let me tell you, it's not a nice place. And what you end up becoming, you don't want to even talk to the, the journalists, the reporters, because why would you? Because all they're going to do is use whatever you say against you. And, yeah, um, yeah and I must say, you know, I, I came out the other side of that. That's what I'm saying. That 07 period for me, um, you know, going into that World Cup, I think I really started to flourish and started to enjoy um, playing for that national team. Tell me what it's like playing in a Rugby World Cup. Because I could imagine that that would be an amazing experience. What are your memories? You played in two, is that right? That's right, yeah. I was lucky enough to play France 07 and New Zealand 2011. So um, when I got selected, so um, I'm a player, I, well, I used to be a player that I hated not playing. So if, if we had a squad of 30 blokes and I'm not in that 22, it would really upset me because I just don't like not playing. And, and fortunately, um we had, um, well, more or less there was myself. I'm trying to think, 07. It was only myself and Chris Patterson that was selected as as a, as 10 options, as in a number 10, which I sort of thought, well, this is great. This means I'm pretty much going to be involved in every game. So I think they picked three halfbacks and they picked two 10s rather than the other way around. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so which meant that I was like, okay, well, this means I'm going to get some really good game time here. Um, and I remember the first game we played, it was Romania. We played down, um, sorry, no, what am I talking about? Now the first game was against, um, Portugal. We played Portugal. Sorry, Romania was 11. We played Portugal in St. Etienne, which is where we're based. And that's been my greatest ever experience on, on a rugby pitch or pre-game, during game and after game was that feeling of getting on the bus, driving through the main streets of St. Etienne and looking either side of the bus, seeing pretty much every single human being that was there watching half Scottish colours, half Portuguese on their faces. And to me, it was just that this is what a World Cup should be about. Literally a celebration of the game that we all love. And that's what it was. It was the game. We were celebrating our success on the field. We had a big win that day and we celebrated Portugal. Portugal scored a try and we, the crowd celebrated that more than us winning, if that makes sense. It was, it was just such a full capacity. Um, you know, and that sort of embodied the whole experience of that World Cup for me. And my time in France for that, wherever it was, four, four weeks was to me, um, I'd say my rugby highlight. Can I ask you something that I've found very interesting doing these podcasts is, um, well, like I, I was talking to Wayne Smith and I asked him, when, you, when you're trying things with the All Blacks, how did you know it would work and, and weren't you afraid of, of fucking up? Because I would imagine that if you fuck up in the All Blacks, then the press would absolutely hammer you. And he said he didn't think like that. And they actually used failure as an opportunity to learn. And, mm-hmm. and it's funny, I t- I've talked to a lot of people about that and it, it seems to me anyway that, that learning from adversity is actually one of the keys to succeeding during your career. Did you have any sort of moments? Yeah. Down moments or, or moments that, you know, for lack of a better word, failure that you learned from and, and moved you on to greater success because of that. Oh, I think in general, as I mentioned, we didn't have great success, especially with Scotland early days. Um, and I, it's an interesting one. I don't really know on a team perspective if that, you know, there's obviously moments, but I can't really recall any particular moments. There was obviously moments in games where as a kicker that big, big things would come right down to the end. So you'd have to do a big kick at the end of matches. And I remember I was um, 15 years old and I was playing again for the Valley and we had a kick against Beecroft at Perrin Hills Park there. And I, and you know, for most, you know, for myself or most kickers, you know, I'd say it was, you should get it. And I missed it. And I'll never forget how demoralized I felt after that. And to me, that was always a massive learning was about, mate, this is a big moment. You are, if you want to be a kicker, you've got to really live up for these big moments. And actually, when you're given this opportunity, actually take it. And I've seen kickers over the years and you hear different commentators, you know, speak about that moment. You know, this is his moment, blah, blah. Trust me, if you're that kicker and you're in that situation, if you're that hooker, you're five meters out. There's no time left. You're down by three, uh, four points. You need to try. He has to nail that line out. They're the moments that you sort of you want you want to take on. That's what I guess. That's what elevates you to that next level. If you want to embrace those moments, but it was as I said from such a young age, something like that happened to me, and I saw the look of disappointment and despair on my teammates, and thought, I don't ever want to feel like that again. You know what I mean? I just because I've I've essentially let the whole team down. We should have won that game on the back of my kick, but. It's all come down to me and I missed it. I don't ever want to be in that position again. It's funny that that memory, considering all you've done in your career, that's the memory that sticks out to you. That's really interesting. I've got a lot of, a lot of things like that from when I was, from when I was a little kid again, because I guess for me, um, you know, I'd watch the big boys as in back then it was league and I'd watch a bit of rugby, but it was, you know, you just watch different moments. Like, um, 
you know, and it was just sort of one of those things that stuck in my, my head. As I said, I, I, I'm funny, like I can remember things from when I was a very young age and that was one of those things. And quite often I would think about that over time. And, um, you know, I guess this is, you know, slightly digressing. There was times where, you know, I'd ha- I was having issues with my goal kicking, as in I might not be striking as well as I want or I might be lifting my head or whatever it was. And, you know, that's where, again, when you're part of a team, if you're an individual, it's v- sorry, if you're an individual, it's very difficult to to have that team aspect. So I would quite often speak to people I trusted in that team. I need you to keep an eye on what I'm doing here. So I want you to watch me. As in during a game, I need you to really watch what I'm doing in my head, what my left foot, um, plant foot's doing. I need to know this information because I feel as if it's slightly out. And you get that feedback during a game from a player who you know you can trust and you fix yourself during the game. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So as an individual, yeah. you wouldn't be able to fix it because you'd be like, oh, who's going to help me? I'm struggling here. I don't know how to fix it because I can't see what's going on. Yeah. No, that's that's really good. So live feedback, basically, during yeah. the game. Not yeah, something I've ever heard of before. I, I think hookers could probably use that as well. Um, talk to me about retiring because I, I know a lot of guys who struggled with that transition from playing to coach, uh, playing to retirement and being a civilian again and having to go and get a real job. What was one? How did that come about? And what was it like for you? Was it a seamless transition? Did you struggle with it? You know, talk me through that. I think um, you mentioned the word seamless. I reckon you've got 2% in the in the rugby world or in the sporting world is a seamless transition. Very, very little have a seamless transition. I um, I was playing at Connacht in uh, 2014 and, um, and I signed with Connacht 2012. Eric Bellwood was a coach at the time and he signed me to a two-year playing contract and we'll review that halfway through your contract and see if you want to carry on playing or carry on going into a coaching role. And that was very much part of the reason why I went to Galway. Uh, Pat Lamb came on board after a year. Unfortunately, Eric um, left his post after that year and he moved into other things. Uh, Pat Lamb came on board um, and come, I think it was March of 2014. I was very up in the air about if I wanted to play. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. But um, Pat said they weren't going to um, keep me on. So that was pretty much for me. I was like, okay, what are my options here? I can go potentially to Italy or France where I absolutely love going to play. I had a really great relationship with the Italian and the French fans. I don't know what it was, but they obviously enjoyed something about the way I played the game. And um, so I'd looked at that as a possible option, but not going too deep. Um, and I eventually then I went back to Australia. So I came back, we finished it was late May 2014, played a game against the Ospreys down at, um, down at Swansea there. Uh, at a big celebration with the players at Connacht. Obviously, they knew I was leaving. Uh, There's a lot of players leaving, blah, blah, blah. Um, it's the same at the end of any year, everyone, you know, the blokes are leaving. It's obviously very emotional, the rest of it. I came back to Australia for six weeks and I had to come back over to the UK for a wedding in, in, um, up in Belfast. And that's when I made the decision. I, um, I basically, uh, made the decision uh, that I'd retire. And I guess as a player, you just think things will happen. Um, I guess I sort of thought, well, I've got time. I don't, I'm in no hurry, but I didn't have anything necessarily on the table. Um, I started doing a bit of work with uh, Sky Sports in the UK. I was working uh, in the rugby, so I was basically doing punditry. So before games, they had quite a lot of coverage. So I might have been getting maybe once every three weeks a gig where I'd have to travel somewhere or um, I remember travelled to Edinburgh. I was travelling back to Galway, down to London, wherever that may be. Um, I also did a bit of um, the vet circuit. So I did um, Bermuda with the Classic Lions. That was wonderful that that year, 2014. Um 
yeah, I did, uh, I did Hong Kong sevens in 2015 and I did Dubai as well. So I was lucky enough to do all that. And then I actually moved back to Australia, uh, May 2015. But if you puzzle it all up, when I came back to Australia, May 2015, I had nothing to go into. So I'd enjoyed that, I guess that period of eight or so months of not having, or sorry, nine months really of not having, um, I'd been used to, as I said, for 11 years of being a pro footballer. So you're told what to eat, you know, what to wear, when to get there, you know, what time really to go to sleep, all this type of stuff. These are your days off. You know, you're allowed to go have a beer then, all this type of stuff. And all of a sudden, you're free to do whatever you want. And for those that know me, know my, you know, what I'm all about, and I enjoy a good time. So, you know, it was it was difficult at times because, you know, you can get a bit carried away because you're so used to someone telling you, you know, you've got to um, rein it in, so to speak. So um, I think for me, I I probably struggled more the year after, if that makes sense. So I was more – so I retired midway through 14, but my real um, – I guess my struggles were the following 18 months when I came back to Australia, that period from sort of June – well, really June 15 to early 2017. So how did, how did you get out of that? Was it just a matter of, of finding work or, or finding – because I know you've done commentary – I know you were doing a bit of coaching for the stars and then New South Wales country with DC. Yeah. Was, was it just something that eventually fell into, into place or was it something that you had to work for or, or like how, how did that all come about? Yeah. A bit of a combination, Chubby. I think, um, you know, Pete Playford was a bit of a, a bit of a savior in many ways. Uh, Pete was coaching the Sydney stars or he, he was given the job and he, I arrived back in Australia said late May that year of 2015, and I got a, a Facebook message from Pete Playford. Hadn't heard from Pete in years, basically saying, mate, because I'd written a little message saying I'm coming back to, to Sydney. He basically said, mate, I hear you come back to Australia. You want to do some coaching with me? And that was it. I was like, that sounds awesome. Let's do it. And that was, you know, and then, you know, I was lucky enough to be involved in that Sydney Stars team, which had a, a young Tom Robinson you know, a young Jake Gordon, who I've got to know really well and, you know, I love to see what he's done in the last couple of years. There's lots of these young kids who were coming through. At the time, we didn't know how far they'd go and it's great to see them uh, progress and had some great times with DC over those, um, you know, 16 and 17. And um, I guess, you know, I met um, my partner Pauline in, at the start of 2016 um, and basically from then, um, you know, we're obviously we were together for a year or so um, we, she got pregnant and we ended up having a little beautiful baby girl, Scarlett. And I think it was that moment when she got pregnant. I was like, wow. Okay. I've been a footy player for a long time, but now I've got to step into that new stage in my life as an adult, as a parent. Um, I've got to get realistic here. And, uh, yeah, luckily enough, I was given an opportunity and, uh, in the business world. And I, um, I spent, uh, yeah, the last three and a half, five years, um, doing that until I've got back involved in rugby. Okay, I want to talk about your coaching. So you've, you had a bit of experience coaching before you jumped into your current role, which is, you know, director of, of Colts or, or head first grade coach for Sydney Uni. How, how has that transition been? Was it, was there anything that surprised you about stepping into the uni job? Cause I know they're, you know, they're an excellent program. Um, they've got an excellent history of, of producing players. How, how have you attacked starting that job? And, like, do you, do you have a philosophy on coaching or, or is it something that you're just working out as you go? Or how have you thought about attacking that job? Because it's a big job. Basically, I got out of the, um, uh, I decided that, you know, I'd, I'd, I've been doing things in rugby as in commentary, still involved in the game, little bits and pieces of, um, you know, kicking, coaching, um, what have you. And I thought, 
what actually makes me happy? And the first answer to that is rugby, right? That's what makes me happy. So um, I needed to find my happiness again. I, um, Luckily enough, I had a, a good yarn with um, the main man, Darren Coleman, DC. And, uh, and yeah, he, um, he just sort of guided me in, in, a, in a direction which uh, he thought would be appropriate and went down that avenue that just so happened there was an opportunity. And, um, yeah, I had a good chat with Nick Ryan at Sydney University. And um, from there, we sort of progressed the, the conversations along the way. And uh, fortunately enough, I was offered the opportunity. So I uh, grabbed it with both hands. And, yeah, I've been there now for – I started uh, in November. So, um, you know, we're, we're early into – I guess the 2022 season, uh, we've got a couple of weeks now of um, pre-season. It's going very, very well. Um, and, yeah, it's, you know, in regards to philosophy, I obviously have uh, different philosophies about the way the game's played. Um, I'm not going to go too deep in sharing too much here, Chubby, but what I will say is that I'm very, very fortunate uh, in the current program I've got at Sydney University. We've got Sean Hedger as our head coach of grade. Um, you know, he's been around the game for years. He's got lots of coaching experience overseas. Uh, Mark Bakewell's involved there, um, you know, Brian Smith. We, you know, there's a Damien Hill. There's an abundance of names. Nick Ryan himself has got a wonderful coaching um, resume. So I'm just really trying to feed off them as much as possible, um, try and mix and match a lot of the things that I can take out of what they're doing um, and, and some of my ideas as well, which I've thought about over the years when I watch um, games of rugby and certain teams. And I, I say to myself, gosh, that'd be such so different if they just did this differently or – if that team only adjusted slightly there, but, you know, you have all these thoughts. I'm sure we all do as rugby people and we have those thoughts. And, you know, now I've got that opportunity to put my own stamp on it. I am i can't tell you how excited I am. I, I, I can imagine because, um, like, just as an example, looking at some clubs, they, they have their style of play. And you often wonder, or I wonder anyway, if a new coach comes in, how how difficult it's going to be to, you know, put their own stamp on it. So have you attacked the Sydney Uni job with the with the mindset of I'm not going to change everything, but I'm just going to add my own flavour to it. Is that been your approach since starting the job? Well, I think you have to. I don't think it's a case of, you know, I don't think any coach is going to be like, oh, I'm just going to follow exactly what that guy's done because he's really good. I, I don't think you can do that because you've got to be yourself. You've got you can't just you know I mean you can't just copy off someone's notes. You know, it's not the way I I don't think you know the game will work, and it wouldn't. I don't think you'd be true to yourself. There's a reason why. I've obviously been offered this role. I'd like to think it's my, my rugby intel um, and my certain ideas around the game. So, um, yeah, as I said, we're, obviously there'll be things that we'll all uh, adopt that will be very, very similar. But ultimately, I think as a coach, you've got to have your own spin on things. Couldn't agree more. Uh, I've seen a number of coaches who tried to replicate, um, you know, coaches that they've had, and I just think players can see through that. Um, so I, I'd, I'd certainly try and do that with myself, and, and it's good to hear that you're doing that as well. What about the human element of it? So you, you've gone from being in a professional environment, uh, which I could imagine most of the guys would be highly motivated professionals. And I'm sure a, a lot of the uni guys, or most of them probably are as well, but dealing with young men, uh, even if they're incredibly motivated, still there's still a human element that you have to deal with as a coach. Have you? I know you've only just started, but have you had much to do with the human side of things and, and how have you found that and, and how have you attacked that? Do you have a process for that? I do have a process. Um, you know, at this stage, there hasn't been any, I guess, major, you know, concerns or major issues around any of the players. Um, but I, I make it, it's a real point to myself to really get to know the, the guys I'm working with. It's not just a job for me. It's not just, or not just a coaching gig to turn up and, right, who have I got today? Or right, I'm going to coach you blokes. It's not about that. It's about those men. I think, 
once you're involved with any group of people, if you can have that connection with them, then they're going to play for you. That, that's what it's all about. You know, I've had coaches in the past which I've thought, oh, here we go again. We're just going through the motions. And you don't feel it. You know, you're more or less just playing in many ways for yourself, um, you know, and, and maybe some of your mates around you. Whereas if you really connect with the team and your coach is connecting everyone together, then it's pretty clear if you're the odd man out. You know what I mean? You don't want to be that guy. Um, so I think that one of, that's one of the biggest things I find, and I'm genuinely interested in people. I think that's why, for me, I that's why I love rugby, first and foremost. I, I had a decision when I was uh, 17 years old, rugby or cricket, and I, ch- I chose rugby because of the people that were involved in the game. I found rugby to be a much more socially um, acceptable and fun group of guys. Now, I'm not saying that was – I'm just saying that was my experience and that's why I chose rugby. And not one day has gone by where I've ever thought, oh, God, I wish I would have chosen the other option. Do you know what I mean? And I still think that's yeah. the case. And to this day, you know, all the group of the young guys I'm, you know, I'm, I'm meeting and getting to know more and more and more, that's what it's all about. You know, everyone, I believe everyone's got good in them. Every single human being has good in them. And to me, it's about bringing that out so we can all feel positive, real buzz and, and real good energy. And that's what, to me, is what sport and life is all about. At 100%, 100%. I find the, the human element of coaching so interesting. And, and as you said, human beings are fundamentally good and interesting. And once you get to know people and they get to know you, that's how I believe you build a, a winning culture. Couple, couple more questions, man. I'll let you go. I, I'm really, really appreciate your time. Just looking back over your career, you've, you've had some pretty good coaches. Can you think of anything that you've come across that might have shaped your coaching or things that you've, seen from that guy that you're going to take and, and adopt. Is there anything that sort of stands out in the mind? Oh, there's, there's been numerous, you know, tidbits, I think, um, along the way. I, I had, you know, I was lucky enough to be coached by um, Daryl Gibson at one point in, in Glasgow. Daryl came up to Glasgow for, signed a three-year contract. And, 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 excuse me, he only ended up playing one year as a captain co-coach. And so Daryl was the backs coach. So I learned a lot from Daryl about his game, the way he, his game awareness and just different things he would, because he was a 12 and different things he would get me to do as a 10, which I'd never been told before. Um, and I found that extremely helpful. And obviously there's a lot of things more so as a player, not necessarily as a coach, but as a player. Um, you know, I think Frank, when Frank Haddon got involved with, with Scotland rugby, he liked to, he had a real philosophy about how we play the game, about, moving teams from side to side and really trying to open them up as best we possibly can. And I think he was that coach that came into Scotland when Scotland needed something different. And he, he was wonderful, I think, for the the, the, the setup in Scotland. The, you know, that was around the 2006-7 sort of period. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, to be honest, I think in, uh, in Sydney, Max, Max Curry was, you know, he was, he was really good for me. Max had a very, again, for the people that, that know Max, he, he's got a very unique way about him. Um, but, you know, if Max, if you got to be, um, you know, close to Max and, and, and part of what Max was about, then there's no better person to have in your corner. And, you know, Max is still a friend to this day. We, um, you know, we catch up, you know, yearly, every, every, you know, once a year and whenever we sort of can amongst there. But he's always a guy that I know if I ever need advice on coaching or, or, or as you said before, the human element, he would have no, um, qualms in, in having that conversation. So, yeah, this, as I said, I've taken different points all over, um, you know, all over my playing career. And um, and as I said, even now, some of the guys I'm working with, it's just, it's quite phenomenal. Yeah, it's a sensational sort of place to, to develop your own coaching and to learn to be a coach. 
Wait, mate, I got to ask you about the shoot shield. Then I got a couple of rapid fire questions, and then I'll get you out of here, mate. You, you were obviously involved in the shoot shield at the sort of start of the professional era, or the mid, the mid of it, for a lack of a better way of saying it. And you, you've been commentating for at least last year, last couple of years, was it? Yeah, Chubby. I, I well, again, I was commentating in twenty, um, well, twenty fourteen when I retired in the UK. I did bits and pieces, and then when I came back to Australia. Funnily enough, I was speaking at um, at a luncheon at Hunters Hill and Gordon Bray was the MC. And anyway, Gordon then basically sort of said he was doing some work at the time for rugby.com.au, Australian rugby website. So I started doing some games with, with Gordon. That was back in, I want to say, 2016. And I've more or less been doing uh, rugby commentary in different means ever since then. So how do you view the Shoot Shield now compared to when you were playing? Has it, has it improved? Has it progressed? Because... Uh, as someone that's been involved in it for a long time, I can remember my first ever training session with South. Do you remember Les Motto? Yes. The old, box, the old boxing coach. Complete complete maniac. But he, he got us on the line and said, just run for 40 minutes, guys, and we'll measure how far you go. Now every session is GPS, your high-speed <laughs> run, your high speed running's done, your load's monitored, you, know, you do hydration testing, which would have been unthinkable when I started playing. Right. As someone that, that's been involved in the game for a long period of time, how, how do you see the progression? How do you see it currently? Let's, wait a minute. Let's go back to Les, all right, shall we? Just for a minute there. Yeah, Les. We, yeah, we used to do something similar. I think we just used to do three, three, uh, three by 10 100-meter sprints. Then you stand on the 45 seconds. doesn't matter how fast you do it. Just do it. And, uh, you know, it wouldn't be pleasant. It would be pretty boring, to be honest. But that's what we did. Um and yeah, I think you, yeah, it's sort of it has evolved the different fitness coaches over the time. Um, yeah, it's quite fascinating. But in regards to the shoot shield, I uh, what I will say is it is a, it is a brand. It is a wonderful product. Um, I went and watched the I'm going to say it was a 17 grand final. 17 grand final it was. Um, Northern Suburbs and Warringah, and Warringah won that day. DC that was his um, copy one with Warringah, and mate that. I'm sure if you were there, it was like 20-odd thousand people at North Sydney. It was absolutely incredible. Like the the vibe and the buzz and everything to do with it was just unreal. And that was one of – like I'd been at many games through my, um, you know, mid-2000 no, – sorry, 2015-16 involvement at West Harbour sporadically. And so I was watching games of rugby. Um, but, yeah, to me, it's 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 a different brand now. It's Back then, it was it was obviously when I was playing, it was a strong, very strong competition. Um but, you know, you had some real slugfest games. It was really, a lot of them were really tight. Whereas now you're generally getting high scoring games. It's all about entertainment. The ball flows. There's beautiful tries, blah, 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 blah. And, um, mate, I, I gotta be honest. I love, I love being involved in it. Um, as I said, once I was given the opportunity to, to get back involved at this, at this level on a full time level, sort of jumped at it. And I think it's, it's a great breeding ground, mate. You'll see, you know, yourself, the amount of, um, professional competitions there are in world rugby at the moment, and the amount of players that get taken from the shoot is just out of control, out of control. Yeah. So you, you develop a player and you're more or less, here you go, he's yours on a silver platter. Do you know what I mean? And that's that's the nature of the beast we're in or the business we're in, but it's great because you get all this new talent coming through, educate them, and away off they can go and enjoy what professional rugby is. I couldn't agree more. A lot of the the sort of top tier shoot shield players who are maybe not quite super rugby players, they're playing MLR, they're playing Japan top league, they're playing English Premiership, they're playing over in Europe, you know. Yeah. And I think that's going to happen more and more. And it's a testament to how strong the comp is. 
couple of rapid fire, mate. I truly appreciate this. Who was the best player you ever played with or against? Oh man, I, I I'm probably going to say Richie McCaw. Uh, again, he just got away with so much, but he just did so much wonderful things. Um, yeah, and again, it's probably weird for me to say it as he's a seven, but phenomenal. Do you have a favourite coach? Oh, I don't know. Again, I think the coaches I mentioned previous, I think they've, um, yeah, I, I, ne- I didn't necessarily, you know, throughout my um, professional career, I don't know if I necessarily had a really, really tight bond with a coach that I, for example, stay in touch with today. Um, you know, as I sort of mentioned some of those names earlier on. Um, yeah, I, th- I think I'm a professional. And nothing quite like that. Certainly players, yes, I had some really close bonds with players. Do you have a favourite touring destination? Gold Coast. <laughs> Great answer. And what I would say is uh, holiday destination Dubai, but um, you know we we, we uh, twice I was on the Gold Coast once before the eleven World Cup and in twenty two thousand and four when we toured Australia, um, mate, awesome, loved it. So uh, yes, wonderful place to visit. <laughs> did did you listen to many podcasts or read many books or watch documentaries or anything like that? Just the Wandering Bear. Yeah. That's all you need, mate. <laughs> mate. Looking looking back, as you look back, would you change anything? Would you change anything from the journey you've been on? Oh, I'm not going to say I'd change anything as a, on a rugby perspective. I think some of my life choices could have been slightly better. And I think if I would have had a bit more education on certain things, then my life might be different in certain ways. But I think overall, in regards to rugby, I don't think, for me, I think I was pretty blessed to to achieve what I did with with the, I guess with the talent I had, I made the most of, I guess what you might call God given talent, and I really worked on that talent, and it progressed me into other areas which I never would have been able to do if I, you know, if I um, didn't play rugby. Now, that that answer will probably tie into my last question. Um, what advice would you give eighteen year old Daniel Parks? Um, seek the right advice on things outside of rugby. I think it would be probably my best thing. And I think that's a, a very valid, and that's why I'm really excited for my current role. I think that's, that's a, um, you know, especially being involved with young men coming straight out of school, um, going on to that next stage in life, whether it be rugby, whether it be sport, whatever it may be in business, but just having a bit more nous about what's ahead. Man, this is fantastic. Thank you so much for this. I, I really appreciate it, man. It was awesome. Great, Chubby. I enjoyed it too, mate. I hope um hope the listeners do too. No, mate, awesome. Um, are we playing Colts and Greater the same ground this year? Because I've heard various things that that might not happen. Um, well, my understanding, again, from the conversations I had pre-Christmas, it was very much the case. Um, oh no, sorry, it was going to be, yeah, you. So, for example, it would be first grade, second grade, first grade Colts, third grade on the main pitch, and on the back pitch it would be, um. Yeah, so it'd be like obviously second. Uh, I think it would, well, how it would go, whatever the fix, the format is, but it was second Colts, third Colts, and fourth grade. Obviously, second Colts would have to be before that'd be the first game on the day on the back pitch. Yeah, you'd think so, wouldn't you? Yeah, so I think it's all they'll all marry it up. Might end up being that, for example, fourth grade is probably the last game, or third grade Colts might be the last game on the back pitch. But I'm, to my understanding, it is, yeah. Sweet. Well, mate, I'll shout you a couple of beers when we play you guys. But I think we played twice this year. So, Good. you know, hopefully catch up. And, uh, mate, thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your day off, mate. Good on you, man. Thanks, Chubby. Thanks. Thanks, buddy. See ya.
All right, guys, that's today's episode. Thank you very much for listening. If you haven't already, please make sure you subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. And please make sure you follow us on social media at Wandering Bear Sports for both Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. And get around us on Twitter and LinkedIn. So that's it, guys. Thanks very much. Uh, We've got more good guests coming next week. So stay tuned. Have a great week. And we'll see you soon. Bye.